everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. And you see, there's great concern that that, that experience is going to be pathologized, that it's going to be labeled as depression, and that's why it's so crucial that clinicians understand that the two, uh, the two sets of symptoms, as it were, are very different from each other. First, a little background and some definitions. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, shorthand DSM-5, is a document published by the American Psychiatric Association, which offers a common language and standard criteria for the classification of mental disorders. It is used or relied upon by clinicians, researchers, psychiatric drug regulation agencies, health insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, the legal system, and policymakers. The DSM evolved from systems for collecting census and psychiatric hospital statistics and from a United States Army manual. Revisions since its first publication in 1952 have incrementally added to the total number of mental disorders and removed those no longer considered to be mental disorders. The current edition, published in 2013, is called the DSM-5, and it's the fifth edition. Perhaps the most controversial change in the new DSM-5 has to do with the subject of grief and depression. Grief therapists, clinicians, and researchers, as well as individuals who have suffered a loss because of the death of a loved one, have had extensive interest in the revision, which is significant, and which may lead to increased use of medication in treating individuals who have experienced a loss. In previous editions of the DSM, bereavement was listed as a V-code, lumping grief into a category of psychospiritual conditions. While someone struggling with the roller coaster of emotions often felt in grief might seek professional counseling, their response to loss and possible symptoms such as sleeplessness, overwhelming sadness, etc., did not mean that this person had a mental illness. Moreover, the DSM-4 included the so-called bereavement exclusion, which said that neither adjustment disorders nor depression should be diagnosed in the immediate aftermath of a significant death. Essentially, this immediate aftermath gave people who were grieving a two-month pass on being diagnosed with depression. When you think about it, this is really unrealistic. Are we so obsessed with happiness that we would think that any bereaved person grieving for longer than two months might be considered to have a mental illness requiring medical treatment? For example, antidepressants such as Welbutrin. While it is true that 10 to 15% of grievers have severe reactions to the loss of a loved one and thus may need treatment that includes prescription medication and therapy, the profound sadness that stems from grief can look a lot like the sadness depression brings, 
And since this similarity can create a dilemma for mental health professionals, the bereavement exclusion from these diagnoses has become highly controversial. In this interview, Dr. Melissa Perrin brings clarity to this important differential diagnosis. Melissa Perrin, PsyD, is a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Illinois with a private practice established in Evanston, Illinois. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and has three decades of clinical experience. Now to our interview. Dr. Perrin, one of the biggest controversies in the DSM-5 has to do with the difference between normal grief and depression. So let's go into that. A shift that was made in major depressive disorder is we used to have a differential uh, piece that said if an individual was struggling with grief symptoms or was ex you know, experiencing a grief episode, that we could not necessarily diagnose major depressive disorder because uh, grief can be extreme. Uh, it can look extreme. And uh, so we used to say that uh, with major depression, grief had to be a separate issue. And in the DSM-5, we're now saying that uh, even if a person is experiencing grief, we can still give an individual major depressive disorder um, and grief is no longer a differential issue. And again, there was a huge outcry saying, uh, let's make sure that we don't pathologize grief, that a grief reaction is not a depressive disorder. It is a, a reaction that all humans have to a significant loss. And grief looks very different from, uh, from depression, very, very different. You think about depressive symptoms as ongoing day after day after day. The individual struggles with specific symptoms. And with grief, uh, we have an ebb and flow from day to day uh, in what happens. So if I may uh, talk about this, um, with grief, we have a predominant affect. We have ongoing emptiness and a sense of loss. We have dysphoria that decreases in intensity over time. So with major depression, unless the individual is on medication, we're not going to see dysphoria decreasing, dysphoria decreasing over time. With grief, we're going to see it decreasing in intensity, but we're also going to see that there are waves of dysphoria. So the individual, after the initial shock is over, let's say three or four months after the initial shock is over of the loss, even if it's a, you know, a loss that uh, the person knew was going to happen um, as the dysphoria decreases, folks will begin to say, you know, I'm feeling better. And then all of a sudden they'll be washed over with pain. It'll be a bad day or a bad morning. And what's important here, this is not a mood swing. With grief, uh, the waves of dysphoria tend to be associated with thoughts or reminders of the loss of the deceased person or the lost job or the lost lifestyle, lost lifestyle that the individual had. And uh, the other thing about grief is that self-esteem is generally preserved. In depression, we see low self-esteem. We see the individual viewing everything through a very, very dark filter, and the individual becomes hopeless. With grief, the individual may feel hopeless, but it's going to be around one item, such as, you know, I'm never going to feel this happy again because this person isn't in my life, or I may never find another love like this one. But it doesn't mean that the individual sees things through a dark filter, other other parts of their lives. And then if there are thoughts of death with grief, they're focused more on wanting to be with the individual who's died. Whereas 
uh, and there's no real suicidal ideation, I'm going to kill myself in order to be with this person. If if a client begins to have suicidal ideation and they're beginning and it's really making sense to them and they can't get off that uh, particular thought process, then we're looking at major depression. We're looking at you know what we used to call complicated grief, and in the DSM-5, we'd be looking at that now as depression. With the major depressive episode, the predominant affect is a persistent depressed mood. It's happening minute to minute every day. There's an inability to anticipate happiness or pleasure, right? And so with grief, there is an ability to anticipate happiness or pleasure, but it's going to be, you know, a little soggy, as it were, but there's an ability to. With major depression, there's an inability to. And then there's pervasive unhappiness, misery, which is different from grief. It's important to remember that that grief, in essence, if we put a time frame on it, is about two years. It is about two years. The first year is all about living through that one year, all the holidays, all the anniversaries, the seasons, the important days, the unimportant days, uh, in which the the human-shaped whole is, is present. The human isn't there. And most people view that first year as, if I can just get through this, when I get to the anniversary of the event, I will feel better. And the anniversary comes and they realize, oh, I don't feel a whole lot better. I still miss this person. This person still isn't here. I still don't want necessarily to think about how to do this without this person or this whatever it's been lost. We're in the middle of an interview with Melissa Perrin, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. And the second year then is about synthesizing the loss. It's about understanding that uh, life has to go on, and, and now I'm going to have to create some new traditions around these anniversaries, holidays, and seasons uh, without the person or thing that I've lost. And usually by the second anniversary, most people are on their way, you know, and they're able to, they've, they've synthesized it. Grief is that space between what was and what is. Grief is when our mind literally, you know, becomes in sync with the new reality. Well, that's a, a great and very apt description. And you see, there's great concern that, that that experience is going to be pathologized, that it's going to be labeled as depression. And that's why it's so crucial that clinicians understand that the two, uh, the two sets of symptoms, as it were, are very different from each other. And so what I ask clinicians to hold on to is, does the individual still have a sense of self-esteem? Is the individual able to anticipate happiness and joy? Are they able to steal themselves and live through enjoying something, even though they're missing the person or, or thing that they've lost? And those, usually when a clinician keeps those in mind, they can say, yes, this is grief, or whoops, no, my client really isn't able to hold on to those things. And so then we can move into depression. But it's so crucial not to pathologize grief because, again, life happens to us and our ability to weather these difficult things, losses, um, and to be able to pull ourselves forward and into the new reality, uh, that's where competence and resilience comes in. It's when we're not able to uh, have that, to turn it around into that state of, look what I've lived through and what I've been able to figure out how to manage, that when we're not able to do that, that's when trauma sets in. That's when we become traumatized. But why did they have the bereavement exclusion in the first place? Precisely because they're two very separate things and that uh, bereavement is different from depression. 
Now, the reason they've rolled it into the DSM-5 and major depression is that complicated bereavement can become depression. It can become depression. I worked with a woman um, a few years ago, and she really was grieving so badly that uh, she really was struggling. And every time she said, are you sure I'm not depressed? We went through the checklist, you know, and and, and I asked her to keep a, a calendar, you know, every day to just write down, you know, to, to I'm a, I'm a, I believe in the continuum, you know, so I'm always saying on a scale of one to 10, where are you on a scale of one to 10? And so I asked her to keep a daily record of where she was with self-esteem, where she was with tears, you know, the, the number of times that she cried um, to give uh, an assessment of um, how difficult it was to show up for work and participate in work. And each time we looked at her calendar because she was concerned about how bad she was feeling, uh, she self-reported that she showed up well at work. She got a good um, year annual report. And so, uh, and she, uh, most of the time was able to feel okay, but when she felt sad, it was a devastating sadness that she felt. So, um, I, I think that, that when clinicians are, are working on this, I, I just think it's crucial to have the client self-report use of, uh, lists and charts, you know, the cognitive behavioral strategy of write down where you are in the continuum and let's look at that. And as the clinician, if we see, uh, a deterioration into, low self-esteem, dysphoria, an inability to get out of bed, which is different from when people feel it when they're grieving. Uh, because remember that with grief, it begins to lift, it begins to pass, which doesn't mean there aren't bad days, but the dysphoria should lift, it should decrease. And uh, if it doesn't, that's when we have to move into the major depressive diagnosis. That was Melissa Perrin, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast when Dr. Perrin continues our discussion. A pet peeve of of mine and other clinicians is that um, we use lay people use the word depression now as a descriptor, and we used to use the word depression as a diagnostic label. And so I'm often talking with my clients about you know when they say I am I have depression, and or, or I am depressed, and I and I'll say you know uh, are there any other words that you can use to describe that? I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander. Thanking you for listening.